Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast, the Husker Fan Sports Show with Dave, Honky, Mac, and Boomer. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast. I'm your host, David Gaspers, and I'm with Honky. Just found out Redcast Rob and I have the same anniversary date this Sunday. That's it. That's my hot take. You guys going to be celebrating together? Is there a name for that? Like something, are we like wedding brothers or something? I don't know. I think the proper term is swingers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll leave that between you two. (laughs) I'm also with Boomer. Well, I'd just like to announce that I am uh, rescinding my initial plans to uh, sign with the uh, Tex Ags podcast, and I have decided to return to the uh, Go Big Redcast. Wise choice. Much closer to home. I'm also with Redcast, Rob. Good evening, fellas. I just wanted to let you know this is my actual second consecutive week on the show, and quite frankly, I'm not really sure what to think about that especially since I am now going to be initiating another uh, stay-in-place order within my household. So hopefully uh, I'll be making more regular appearances here, but that's only if Honky continues to text me. (laughs) Be on your best behavior. Yeah, we'll see how this show goes, Rob. It was uh, taut at times last week, and we don't have uh, Mac with us. Uh, He's got the in-laws coming into town and... uh, so uh, we got to handle this one. Um, but Honky, I, I do know that next Tuesday, I believe you and Mac will be interviewing uh, Brett Ciancia of Pick 6 Previews, right? So pumped for that. Uh, he let us know that last year we were the first show that he did, and uh, he loves being on the show because we'll talk for an hour, hour and a half. There's no limit there, and you can't always do that on a radio show. So I'm just pumped. Dude knows so much about football. The guy's a Heisman voter. We'll throw in some good juju there for uh, – Mills and, and Martinez, you know, our guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. I have been perusing the uh, the Pick 6 preview. It's already out and available uh, online. Go check it out. Uh, well worth your time. In-depth breakdown of all uh, Power 5 teams plus Notre Dame. You guys will go into deep deep dive on this, but you know, he has, I believe he has Nebraska fourth in the Big Ten West. I imagine uh, it's pretty muddled in there, so I'll be interested to hear that conversation of how he arrived at that and how the rest of of the Big Ten breaks out for him. Mm-hmm. Well, Honky, um, before we get to that interview next week, uh, we want to uh, tackle the defensive side of the ball uh, here on the Go Big Redcast. We talked offense last week. Uh, before we get to that, let's uh, dive into some roster management, though, right? Yeah, so we've had a couple things happen here in the last week. Uh we got a big commitment uh, the other day from running back Gabe Irvin out of Buford, Georgia. He selected the Big Red over dozens of other big teams across the country, including both in-state schools, Georgia and Georgia Tech. I think anytime you can get that, we answered a question on Twitter. Someone asked, uh, how good is this kid or whatever? And the answer was as simple as, anytime we can get a running back out of Georgia and he has a Bulldogs and Yellow Jackets offer, that's a good get right there. 
and he's a bigger bodied guy, um, which is great. I think we want to continue to have those Dedrick Mills, Zigbo style of running backs in this offense as we continue to recruit the Ramirez Johnsons and, and those speed guys too, right? So we're going to have a mix of both, and he definitely kind of gives us a, a bigger bodied guy. Yeah, I want to just add that really quick, Honky. I've listened to several breakdowns of uh, Gabe Irvin uh, on the radio, um, and it seems like it's a really good get. He's only a three-star, but it feels like with the offer list that he had and he's playing at a high level of Georgia that this is a really good fit and uh, someone who has competed at a high level there with uh, some really good players on his own team. So I think it's a, it's a great grab. Yeah, that was actually Max' response when I uh, sent him a text and I was asking him. Max, kind of our running backs dude. He knows. Especially Georgia running backs. Oh, my yeah. gosh, yeah. And his immediate response was Buford, Georgia, where Gabe is from. He's like, oh, that's a that's a hotbed. That's a great uh, high school to get a kid out of. I know we have another kid, Williams, I think, that we're going after out of that school right now. I was looking at the geography of the state, and Buford's kind of northeast of Atlanta, almost kind of in between where Athens and, and Atlanta is. So it's up there. It's in a hotbed area. And like I said, he had all the in-state offers. So I'm telling you, this is a great state. Georgia is a state that we're hitting on strong. And I'd say it's even more important to me than Florida. And I know this staff has Florida connections, but Georgia is the, the state where they have as many recruits that come out of that state as the, as California. And California is 45 million people in Georgia. I don't have the exact population, but what, 12? Something around that, yeah. million, something like that. Exactly. So per capita, Georgia is sending so many more kids D1, and yet... They only have two schools. I mean, they only have two big Power Five schools in state, and one of them, Georgia Tech, you know, is a academically, you know, probably even has higher standards too. I'm not sure what the academic requirements are to get in. That is correct. So the point yes. is, Georgia yep. can't take every one of their kids, and if we can get in there and get a bunch of these guys, uh, that's a that's a great sign for us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we actually I remember having that conversation a year or two ago, Honk on. Um, on recruiting in different states and the per capita amount of uh, Division One scholarships. And I had always, I lived in Texas for four years, so I'd always saw, I think Texas at times have had over 400 D1 recruits in a, a given cycle. And uh, you just do that per capita. It's just a huge number. Um, and then actually, as we broke down those states, we saw how high Georgia was, which was even higher just because they have so much less population, but are still producing well over 200 Division One recruits per year. And you can see why it's a hotbed and why this coaching staff at Nebraska hits up Georgia so often. Absolutely. And so at, to Max's point, if we can create a little pipeline to Buford, I think that would be great. Yep. Uh, another school that I think we've talked in the past about that if there could ever be a pipeline in the future it would be Iowa Western Community College out of Council Bluffs. And we brought in a defensive back, a walk-on, uh, Darius Moore. He's a 6'1", 190-pound defensive back. And he just finished up a, a very productive sophomore season at Iowa Western. Uh, so he announced plans to walk on at Nebraska. That's in addition to a, a kicker that uh, we got earlier this year that was walking on here too. So we're starting to open up the connections there to Iowa Western. And who knows what that can lead to down the future, Dave. Yeah, it's a, a junior college that we should be getting players from on a regular basis. Hasn't really happened and really, really hasn't fully happened yet, even under the Frost regime. But um, every time we can get someone there, that's a, a good sign. And the last piece of roster management that we've had from the last week is we got Ezra Miller, who uh, was a former scholarship lineman at 
Iowa. He's 6'6", 310. He was a former four-star and three-star in the different recruiting services, but he was part of their 2019 class. And we had a question from Jay for Jared on Instagram, and he said that we just got the player, uh, Ezra, from Iowa. And he goes, so how many walk-ons are we getting now from other schools? Is that five? And he wanted to know something about the, is this a strategy? Is this something that we've done in the past? And to Jay for Jared's point, he's the fifth D1 walk-on transfer that we've had. So this joins, I'm not going to get the kid's name right, but Naridin Nuli. He's the Colorado State uh, offensive lineman. I should know it because he went to Norris, and that's the school district that I live in. Um, but we also had Jared Bubach from Arizona State. Uh, we've had Levi Falk, who's from South Dakota, and he's the wide receiver. And then we've had kicker Connor Culp from LSU. So, you know, Dave, that's five walk-on transfers now just in this one offseason of guys that have been either D1 or, I guess in the case of Levi Falk from South Dakota, at least guys that have been playing, you know, at a scholarship level that have transferred here to walk on. Yeah, I think it is really interesting, an interesting trend. Definitely a strategy. Um, I think each case is unique. I think you can run down those five, and there's probably a different reason for each one of those. Several several of them are in-state uh, players that left Nebraska and have decided to come back. In Jared Bubach's case, as a, a fifth-year grad transfer-type scenario, already graduated from Arizona State, didn't play significantly down there. Why not come back and see if he can contribute to his um, you know, home state team. Uh, in Ezra Miller's case, I think it's really interesting. I, uh, I, li- I was listening to Hell Varsity Radio uh, earlier today. They broke down this whole scenario, uh, Chris Schmidt and company. And, um, you know, Ezra was, I think, the number two, number two recruit out of Iowa um, in the 2019 class under uh, Dugan, uh, who we were after, you know, Council Bluffs quarterback who's down at TCU. And, um, you know, there's various things that are happening on happening in Ezra Miller's life. It, football was not, not where it needed to be. He had to concentrate on other, other things, uh, needed some time away, ultimately stepped away from that program, uh, spoke highly of Iowa, actually, but he wanted to restart. And he knows, knows someone on the Nebraska roster, uh, Mosiah Newsom. And so we're, we're an obvious landing point. And, and a lot of these guys, I think, probably feel like, you know, if they can put their time in uh, in a year, 18 months, they're probably going to have a scholarship. So, I mean, at times it makes sense. It's time to throw the bones. All right, well, we started off there with roster management talking uh, about the offensive side of the ball a bit and a little bit on special teams, but the rest of the show here will focus more on the defensive breakdown, and uh, we'll hit the mailbag here. Honky also did some Twitter poll questions uh, to prime the pump a little bit, right? Yeah, well, you know, last week uh, we talked about offense, and we had Twitter polls and everything that were surrounding the 2020 offense. Well, this week we went to the Blackshirt side of it. And uh, a question that we did a little bit earlier this week, we said that we predict NU will have at least one player make second team all Big Ten defensive team. So last week offense, we said there was going to be a first teamer. We're not as bullish on the defensive side. We're saying second team, and there will be at least one. Which position group do you think that that player will come from? And 8% said defensive tackler, D-end, which kind of makes sense. You know, we're replacing a lot of those guys. Uh, 18% said inside linebacker or outside linebacker. 54%, 54%, by far the, the most, said cornerback, and then 20% said safety. 
Oh, and, and I should mention that Jeff Swoboda uh, said, second team, that's that's all we're doing? He goes, isn't this an off-season poll? So I did respond to him that he's probably right. Let's rephrase that to who's going to have a Hall of Fame-level season this year. And, you know, maybe not second team, but Hall of Fame-level. And, uh, you know, I always have to thank, you know, the Husk guys for that kind of, you know, support and, and Kool-Aid drinking. So, But anyways, Dave, 54% said cornerback they think would be the, the most likely position to have a, at least a second team all big 10 defender that's interesting all right well i think they're probably thinking of dicaprio boodle then i would only guess maybe taylor Britt. i mean i don't know yeah he Britt. was going to be my suggestion yeah if he's cornerback unless they shuffle him around yeah i guess maybe again. that's a good point it's a good point guys because he will likely move a cornerback is that fair to say honky well you know that's the thing and with these questions it, we leave them very open-ended I think some people could be thinking safety when they think Taylor Britt. And yeah. some people could be thinking corner. And so somewhere in that 54% that said corner, 20% for safety, they might have been thinking Taylor Britt either way. Sure. I think uh, Cam Taylor Britt would actually be the most logical choice from that secondary. And actually, I was looking at Pick 6 previews, and uh, they did have Taylor Britt as third team All-Big Ten. Uh, anybody know who else they had listed as third team All-Big Ten? I believe it was Ben Stilley. Ben Stilley, right. So that's another another option for you. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, was uh, Taylor Britt uh, honorable mention for all Big Ten last year? So he I was. Think, okay, I think sure. that's another good reason. You know, he's already kind of got that early buzz, I guess. You know, just kind of like that Heisman early buzz. So I think he'd be a good choice. Yep. When you look at the cornerback spot, Boodle and uh, Braxton Clark are two guys. Now, Clark, you know, he hasn't started games in the past, but he's the big 6'3 dude. They like him. Yeah. And Boodle has started a boatload of games, right? So, I mean, these are guys that I think they have some confidence in. These are two Florida kids playing cornerback for us. I mean, that's exactly what we're looking for moving forward. The the inside-outside linebacker spot only getting 18%. You can tell that's a spot where I think people, they just don't know what we have right now. I think there's some talent, but I don't think they have any concept of what we have. You started briefly touching on the inside and outside linebacker position, and I've been going back and looking um, at some of uh, Shenander's coaching at Central Florida um, just to kind of see, okay, what's this defense look like? Who's making the most tackles? Who's getting the most sacks? Um, Who's contributing the most on the defense? And quite frankly, it's the inside and outside linebackers, and I feel like that that is going to be a position that's going to really need to have to step up. And I'm looking at even stats from last year's team and three of the top four guys making making the most tackles on the team are the inside and outside linebacker positions as well as the number of sacks so it seems really consistent with his coaching style at least i mean obviously the davis brothers aren't coming back <laughs> i mean they're they're gone they you know they they were in the nfl draft and you know those were their sack leaders but beyond that it was linebackers linebackers inside outside linebackers and so I'm kind of feeling like that might be, based off of these polls, the dark horse position that might surprise a lot of people this year because it seems to be really consistent with his defensive coordinator style. No, absolutely. I just like who personnel-wise is that person to make that big jump, right, Honky? And and maybe it's someone like Caleb Tanner who, who's ready to shine, but someone needs to make that step to actually perform at that level. You look at UCF, I mean, look at some of the linebackers they had. Yeah. And and you see NFL talent there, right? And we, we need to see that showing up uh, in the black shirts. What about like a third or fourth year guy like JoJo? I mean, even um, in pick six, I was looking through that here this week, and, and uh, 
Pixix Previews actually mentions him by name in there about uh, as a player that you might want to look for that could maybe open some eyes this year. Yeah, JoJo's a guy that came to mind because what you're looking for when you're coming up with guys that are making third and second and first team all conference, you're looking for guys that have some production, some stats behind it. And I think that's a good segue into the trivia polls that we had here uh, about defense. And the first one was, what player do we think leads the D in sacks in 2020? And the first one is, the player that leads the D in sacks in 2020 will come from what position group? And we had defensive tackle, defensive end, inside linebacker, and outside linebacker. So we left it all up to the to the front seven. So if there's some safety or corner that leads us in sacks, first off, awesome, but we're not counting you right now. Are you trying to say Charles Woodson isn't on this team? <laughs> well, he definitely isn't on this team. I've, I've checked the roster. <laughs> but defensive tackle came in with 7%. Defensive end came in with 39%. Inside linebacker was 105 Outside linebacker was 43%. So that was number one was outside linebacker, and D-end was number two. Dave, I think you mentioned Caleb Tanner a little earlier. He certainly is someone that I think we need to count on. We talked about Georgia players earlier, and this is one of them. He's going into his third year. We need a productive year out of the guy. Jojo Doman is a guy that has had some production in the past. He's an outside guy. Uh, you know, recruits like the Juco uh, Payne, uh, Garrett Nelson coming back. So, I mean, outside linebacker came in at 43% with number one. Do you see that being the spot that's going to bring in the, the most amount of sacks? Well, I think to Rob's point, ideally – Yes, that's where you'd want to see the sacks come from, just in a 3-4 defense. Um, last year, though, I'd imagine that it was Cahill Davis with the most sacks. And so I think Ben Stilley might be your safer bet. But ideally, outside linebacker would be where you're going to see that pressure. Yeah, You're right, by the way. It is Cahill Davis. He had eight sacks last year. I mean, that's almost more than the next three guys behind him combined. Yeah, and Ben Stilley coming back, uh, you know, I know he was listening to pick six previews as I think like third team, all Big Ten. Um, he's one of the DNs, and they came in number two on this poll at 39%. And my only thing is, and maybe I'm just wrong here, but Ben coming into his fifth year in this program, I think he's going to be really good for us. I think he's going to be a solid player. I just don't see him being a sack machine. I don't see that being the stat that is going to make him an all-conference player. And I hope Ben proves me wrong. But what I see is a very consistent player that's going to be out there 75% of the time. He's going to be a leader for us. He's probably going to be a captain. All the things you want out of him. But I just haven't seen anything up to this point to see in a 3-4 defense him being a sack machine. God, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, sometimes though, Honky, too, though, you got to think about it. You Maybe you want him to be the kind of guy that's developed to the point to where he's going to demand the uh, occasional double team that will allow other players to get through some of the gaps to sack the quarterback. So Absolutely. And to me, those guys are almost more important than anybody else on the defensive line or defensive backfield because mm-hmm. those are the guys that create the opportunities for other people. They're, you know, they command so much attention that you're going to have to know when to shoot right up the middle. That's what we talked about a year ago. Like when we would play Minnesota and Minnesota ran for, I don't know, 300 yards, whatever their stats were. I think they're still running on us. Yeah. I know. But the game got done and people are like, oh, you know, they ran for a bunch of yards. Our D line sucked. And it's like, no, they didn't. Our D line did the job a lot of times, but our linebackers wouldn't fill, wouldn't make the tackles, wouldn't make the plays when the defensive line did everything you just said they needed to do, Rob. A lot of times they'd take up a double team or they'd get into the backfield and even get some penetration. 
linebackers, if you're going to run a 3-4, <laughs> and four of your front seven are going to be linebackers, they need to be productive. So exactly, I think, to your point there, Rob, is that Ben Stilley, I'm calling myself out here. I just said that he can't be, you know, he's not going to be first team all Big Ten because he's not going to get the sacks. But that doesn't mean that he isn't going to play at a first team quality level. He may not get the stats. He may not get the sacks. But if he's taking up the double teams, if he is taking on the best tackle that the other team has, whatever it is, and he's allowing one of those guys behind him to get the sacks and make the plays, who cares at that point? I mean, we just need guys that know the defense, know the structure, and, and do what they're supposed to do. Yeah, and I think that's the big thing we really need to see from the linebackers and the secondary, you know, the safeties, is they need to be just more decisive this year because I think that there was a lot of that last year where they just seemed to either be just a step or two out of place or just take that extra... Run gaps were horrible at times. Yeah, and just kind of freezing here and there and just would just not quite be there. So it didn't really matter what the D-line was doing, but you're giving those offensive players, those those all-linemen that are getting out and an extra step or two on, on your linebackers and secondary, and then that's where you're breaking those big plays. So you, like you said, Hunk, even when the line was doing what they were supposed to be doing, you were still getting you know gashed for those for those big play opportunities. Well, you know, actually, we have a mailbag question. You know what? I don't even know if we're going to do a mailbag section. I think we're just going to keep throwing them into what we're talking about right now. I like it. Seems fair. One of our favorite Twitter followers, uh, Richard Fitzwell, <laughs> I think I've said his name like three or four times now, he goes, what do we need to see from the defensive line and the defensive backs to allow the linebackers to play more aggressively at and behind the line of scrimmage? Which I think that really is an interesting thing because you got 11 guys on defense, and he's saying you know the three up front, the four in the back, they're each doing things respectively versus the run and versus the pass, and they are the, the, the hardest spots, I think, on defense really are linebackers. You are, you're being asked to, to blitz. You're being asked sometimes to take on – linemen you're being asked to cover sometimes receivers I mean you are just playing both front and back and so his question there and I'm going to go to Rob with this what can the the front three and what can the back four do to help those middle four guys the inside and the outside linebackers play at maximum speed oh it's it's funny you ask because it's it's just another one of those like simple football answers the guys up front need to put the pressure on the quarterback to force them to make the throws. The guys in the back need to be able to cover guys long enough to not allow them to get open, which ties back in to the guys up front who need to put that pressure on so that, you know, the quarterback's either getting run out of the pocket so that the linebackers have to make a play or they're getting forced to, um, you know, throw the ball downfield into heavy coverage. And again, this ties back to Shenander's style of defense where it seems like those are the guys, the linebackers are the ones traditionally in his best defenses at UCF or making the plays. Um, so I'm really hoping that this year you see a lot more of that too. Hey, Honky, I want to kind of throw this back to you a little bit. Um, it feels like you're riding solo without Mac breaking these things down here. The question is intriguing to me because we've already answered the front three uh, portion of it, but I think the back four, the secondary, and how that makes the linebackers' job easier um, is is intriguing to me and and in particular i think it, it it's probably the the safeties in this case that would be desmuke and williams and i would think that how in particular probably desmuke is is who's kind of like the quarterback of the of the defense here and making sure that everybody's in the right place um, is a really critical part of making sure the linebackers are in a position to succeed out there 
Dismuke has so much experience right now. And then Williams, obviously we were hurt by him getting hurt so early last year. But the reality is now that we have him back, we have two safeties that have a lot of experience between the two of them. And so, you know, you always kind of hear who's the quarterback of a defense. In a traditional 4-3, it was always the middle linebacker. Um, and we may have some inside linebackers that are the quarterback of this, but I think really the safeties can be the quarterback of this defense. And either one of those, Dismuke or Williams, I mean, these are guys, they have played in a lot of meaningful downs and a lot of meaningful games at this point. And uh, I think they can certainly, from from the back end, you know, kind of help set up the front four and, you know, front seven and make sure that uh, that everyone's kind of in the right spot and doing the right things. Well, speaking of the front seven, the second question that we had was, Coach Shenander has previously stated that they have multiple odd and even man looks in the playbook. Yet, for the most part, NU has been mostly a 3-4 defense under his watch. Do you think we will see more four-man fronts this season? Yes or no? 67% uh, came back and said yes. 33% said no. So, basically, Dave, what do you think of when when you hear that we're going to run more four-man front well, we've heard this quite a bit in the last three years, and we've yet to see a lot of four-man front. I mean, some. I'm not, not saying that it, it hasn't been out there. I think that poll question is a little bit wishful thinking from the fan base because we still are tied to, <laughs> to the four-man front. Um, I think we're going to see mostly three-man front again in something similar to what we saw last year. If it's more four-man front, it's an incremental uh, change. Yeah, well, Dave, and the reason I asked that one was that last week when we were talking about the offensive uh, poll questions, we asked the one about the I formation. I yeah. had to throw one in about formation <laughs> on this. Rob, you know, you're a Raiders guy. You're an, you're an NFL guy. Do you care 3-4 versus 4-3? Like, I, we make a big deal of it because we've been 4-3 literally since all the 90s and winning ch- titles and everything. But is it a big deal to you, or, or do we make too big of a deal of it? Yeah, I think sometimes it's too big of a deal is made out of it. I mean, you asked that question, and of course you had to throw the Raiders in there where I was trying to go two weeks in a row without bringing them up at all. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I do. I watch the NFL, and and the NFL is all about hiding defenses, right, and stealing other teams' schemes you know, that are successful at the time. The copycat league, no doubt. And the copycat, yeah, the copycat league. And, And quite frankly, I think that Frost in some ways has said that he's realizing that, you know, now that he's in the big 10, there's a lot of things that he realizes he needs to be doing differently because of the level of competition. So I don't think that that's going to be something that we should really worry about. I just want to see results. Mm -hmm. I would say honky. It's it's a really interesting uh, thought process here. Maybe when Chandra said that it's revealing a little bit of how much, uh, depth and talent he thinks even though it's very young and inexperienced but depth and talent he does actually have along that front line of the defense and that he can plug and play a lot of guys and one way to get a few of those guys more reps is to go to a four-man front occasionally yeah now I mean Dave when he said it specifically he said it at the beginning of last season which is not a knock on what you just said because we just sent the Davis twins and Daniels I mean these guys are going pro so I, we do have some front four depth, but to that point of like, at the end of the day, I he's a 3-4 guy. I mean, this is yep. what he wants to run. And I will be very clear here that I love talking X's and O's, and I love getting deep into that, and I love the Chaz and SoCal stuff that he posts on Twitter and all that. I love getting into it. 
I will always admit I'm behind the curve on 3-4. It just it still doesn't feel comfortable to me yet because I just personally don't know it well enough. And I don't ever want to call it out for not working or not being something that can work in this league because, Dave, we've said it 100 times. Every time we say the 3-4, and it, that's the problem. It can't work in the Big Ten. Then who do we always talk about? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yeah, and they, they seem to kind of do okay, don't they, defensively? Yeah. And a lot of those linebackers are not necessarily the four-star guys. They're, mm-hmm. they're actual um, in-state kids that they bring along, and they know how to develop into great three-four linebackers. And I wonder what Bryson Williams could have done in the uh, the old three-four as a D lineman. But that's that's another day. Uh, let's move on to the next poll question, Boomer. Uh, we haven't heard you in a little while, so I'm going to throw this one to you. Which Husker DB will have the most interceptions this season? And we gave the options of DiCaprio Boodle. He, had, he came at 9.9%. Marquel Desmue came in at 8.6%. So, I mean, these are very low numbers. Uh, somebody here might take over the uh, the poll. Uh, Cam Taylor-Britt, 778 And then other 3%. So, uh, apparently, Cam Taylor-Britt is the guy they think is going to definitely have the most interceptions on the season. Do you agree with that? No, I think that's a, a fair prediction there with Cam Taylor-Britt. Since we had already predicted he was a great possibility to be one of our, you know, Big Ten, second or third team, or maybe even first team, or heck, let's just go, he was going to be, you know, All-American all the way around, first team for everything, yep. So, Hall of Fame. Hall of according Fame. to Jeff Swoboda, Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame, yeah. So I think he'd be a, a good prediction. And the fact we'll probably see him, you know, all over the field. So I think he'd be a, a good choice on that. Hopefully he will. Yeah, and, you know, that's one of those things this defense needs to be generating a lot more of since that's the whole idea behind the Chinander defense is, you know, you're going to see the field a lot, but you're going to generate a lot of turnovers. So I think it's going to be huge to see if he can, you know, do that this season. The key is moving Cam Taylor Britt around a lot to have him have those opportunities to pick the ball off. You know, um, if we learned anything last year is that, like, DiCaprio Boodle didn't really get thrown to that often mm-hmm. um, at times. And so... Uh, he may not have the opportunities to get those picks, whereas uh, Taylor Britt's going to be harder to avoid. Yeah, I was going to throw that question on its head a little bit and say, you want the answer to that question, who's going to be your second best defensive back on the team? Because because <laughs> the best guy, right, is they're not going to throw yeah. his direction. So who's your second best yep. defensive back? That's going to be the guy with the most interceptions. That's a great point there, Rob. Okay, next question, Dave. This one I have to throw to you to start with. NU redshirted the majority of their 2019 class last season. How many players from that class do you think will become regular starters by the end of the season? So we had zero as an option. Only 2.5% said that. One was 9%. Uh, two was 39%. Three or more was basically 49.5%. So hmm. people think at least three or more guys by the and I specifically asked it by the end of the year. So I don't care about game one. I'm talking game 12 uh, by the end of the year. How many? So we're talking the Pola Gates, um, you know, Heinrich and, and Hannah and Robinson, all those guys. Right. Those are guys they've redshirted a year ago. Some of them played a few games, you know, played their four and, and, and still maintain the redshirt. But how many of those guys do you think will actually become regular starters? That is a really three or more is a lot. I like a lot of these guys. Don't get me wrong, but I think Trevor Robinson could be starting very early. In fact, potentially um, in that. And I think miles farmer is another one that there is mm-hmm. going to tons of playing time, 
But he's got two really good guys in front of him, so I don't know if that's initially a starting position. He's going to see the field a lot, but I don't know if he's starting. I want to see one of those linebackers step up and start because that would mean that they are claiming that spot, and that would be great to see in displacing potentially a, a senior, but I just don't know who that would be quite yet. Mm-hmm. Well, you would hope that a lot of these guys are going to end up being starters because these are his guys. These are his guys, right? Yeah. I agree with that, Rob, but the question was by the end of this year. By the end of this year, yeah, and and I guess that would yeah. make them and That's a that's a redshirt freshman. Let me ask it this way here. Sipple had a great article the other day and it was talking about how Frost is so bullish and somewhat dependent upon that 2019 class really starting to show up next year. Obviously, he bit the bullet a year ago and redshirted some guys that could have helped us a year ago. But, yes, he did. But he, he did the thing kind of building towards the future. But now that we have those guys available to us, number one, I guess I can come up with three guys. Like, I have three guys right off the top of my head. I think Robinson, Pola Gates, and Snodgrass are three guys that I am really high on. Mm-hmm. But my question is, is it a good thing? If those guys are starting at the end of the next year, is it a good thing in the sense that they're so good, they've, they've developed so fast or why are those guys taking over someone's spots? Cause each guy I just mentioned there would be taking over guys that are fourth and fifth year players. Yeah, exactly. I mean, th- there's nothing wrong with those guys wearing gold jerseys in practice, meaning that they're second team defenders. You know, they don't necessarily have to be black shirts. Right. I mean, every guy I just mentioned, there can be very productive players wearing a gold shirt. No, I agree. Yeah. Look, competition means everything. And so if they earn the black shirt, so be it. But uh, they better earn it. And that means they've beaten out a, a senior or junior that um, is, could also fill that position quite well. I mean, I, I my understanding, Pula Gates has had some injuries. So I don't think he may not be quite ready just from a rep's perspective to, to take that on. End of the year, maybe that's the case. I don't know. Um, Stodgrass is a very interesting one too, uh, Honk. It's a really, really interesting in-state kid that uh, should have a great career here. I just think it's it could be a little too early. I think Robinson is is by far the most likely to have a significant contribution this year. That's just my take. Well, if he's the one, then you know nine point four percent said they thought one. I I kind of agree with you, Dave. By the way, if there is one, he seems to be the guy. Let's get to the last question here. And the last trivia poll was. NU had the 94th ranked rush defense in the country last year at 188.1 yards a game, which just is really not good. Only Purdue, Illinois, and Rutgers were worse in the Big Ten. And so a week ago we talked about on offense, we ran for 204 yards a game. That was third in the Big Ten. It was like 28th in the country. Anyways, we were 94th in defense. So the question was, where do you think NU will rank in this category in 2020? And uh, the first option was top 30, and only 5% think we're going to be in the top 30. Uh, 31 to 60 uh, was 40%. 61 to 90, which is still an improvement, but 61 to 90 was 49%. That's a little bit higher. And then 90 or above was 5%. Rob, you hear those numbers there. Most people... The vast majority, 49, think that we're going to still kind of be in that roughly 61 to 90 in the country kind of defense. What does that tell you? If we finish anywhere in that 61 to 90th kind of percentile, what does that tell you towards how this season is going to go? It means we're scoring a lot of points. <laughs> I like that optimism. 
And, well, no, listen, listen. Um, and this is why I say that because uh, a traditional Scott Frost offense hits hard, hits fast, hits often. Nothing really pops out to me from any of his defenses. Gave up a lot of yards. They were on the field a lot. They were um, never really in the top 50, I don't think, of any defensive category. All turnover-based. Yeah, except for turnovers. It was a turnover-based defense. So as far as I'm concerned, if they're in 60 to 80 range, I'll be okay with that as long as those turnover numbers are where they need to be for it to be successful. Because that's the other thing is that while the defensive numbers overall weren't that great, they were ranked up there. I think they were like the number one scoring uh, defense in like 2016 or 2017 or something like that. So um, that's where I'm going to really want to see production. Rob, I hate everything you just said, and at the same time, I think you're right. And Dave, I want (laughs) to ask you this. Nothing that we've heard out of this coaching staff has told us that we want to be the number one defense in the country. Yep, that's right. It's always been we want to be good enough to get the ball back to our offense. We can have another discussion on another day about whether that's the right route to go. But to his point, whether we give up a bunch of yards or not, is that improvement, I guess, if we become the 61st to 90th best defense, somewhere in that range, and it's better than our 94th was a year ago, you know, if we get to that point and we're doing the turnovers, is that good enough? Is that is that going to get us where we need to be? Well, I think you actually need a, a different metric, I'll be honest with you. I, I like a Phil Still metric, like yards per point here for defense to actually get a better idea of how we're performing because that would actually indicate that you are um, sure maybe you're giving up some yards, but you are creating turnovers, which then stall drives for your opponent, et cetera. Right. So if you're doing well on that stat on the defensive side and making the, your opponent very inefficient, um, then that's fine. So I don't, I don't really don't know if just looking at, um, you know, the yards or rush yards given up or something like that is really giving you a clear indication of how successful the defense is not. I mean, Boomer, if we simply could hold the Wisconsin, you know, first team running back under 200 yards, we'll probably drop into the fifties, right? Yeah, that would help. I think they've averaged something, <laughs> what, like 300 and some odd yards. That's 330. Game. I think the yeah, last six, like games the last six or seven times we've played them. It's, it's something obscene. Yeah, I think, Dave, you've hit it right. The big thing, this is both on offense and defense, is we have to be able to, you know, the yards are great. You know, they're just kind of gravy. But you have to be able to convert it two points and keep your opponents from scoring. And last year, I think we averaged, it was 28 points a game, you know, scoring, and our defense gave up 27.8 points a game. So, you know, pretty average. I think that was uh, 66th in the country for defense. And an offense, that put us 72nd for the amount of points we scored a game, which is actually 0.1 points behind a producer skips Colorado State Rams. So, Ugh. you know, there's, Ugh. there's, yeah, there's room for improvement on both ends of that. I mean, I, I think we all saw that last year, just, you know, the, the red zone struggles we had. A lot of that came from, you know, just inability to put it in the end zone and the, and the kicking game struggles we had when you couldn't count on, you know, being able to make a field goal when you needed it. Just, you know, a few of those things could kick that up to, 30-some points a game, and then you're looking at a lot more wins. So I that's what we need to see, I think, out of both ends of the ball is just converting our offensive yards to points and keeping those defensive yards, keeping them out of the end zone. Uh, let's move on to the last question from the mailbag, and this comes from Kel the Coach on Twitter. And he says, let's say the coaches decide one player has earned a black shirt after one glorious win over Purdue. So we're 1-0, woo 
And uh, we kick off the season. So he goes, if that happens, who do you guys see playing above and beyond to nab the elusive first black shirt and why? Well, I'll, I'll just have fun with the answer uh, and go with someone who will bring the most passion and enthusiasm to the field and go Garrett Nelson. Oh, that's awesome, Dave. The second you said passion, you didn't even have to name the guy. I mean, yeah. Nelson is – no, that's perfect. Nel- how good can Nelson be? I think he could be pretty good, you know, especially a, a, a someone who is a game changer. To Rob's point, he's the type of guy that could create turnovers because he creates havoc. Um, if he just makes a few less mistakes, he's going to find the field more often and have more opportunities to make that havoc. Yeah, and Dave, when you say mistakes, let's think towards last season and you go back and outside linebackers and DNs, how many times did we give up the edge? Oh, my God. Whether it was Purdue at the end of the game or the reverse against Iowa or whatever it was. I mean, that's the thing. And, you know, we've changed coaches at the outside linebacker spot too. We have got to set the edge. We have got to contain. And I think Nelson's important. He's a huge part of this. But we need not just sacks out of those outside linebackers. We need to force everything back into that middle. We need that front seven making tackles in that middle of the field. We need to not give up the outside. End of story. Absolutely. Hey, I'm going to stick to my guns on this one. I'm going to say that Va is going to be that player. He's going to be the guy. He's playing the position that I think needs to make the biggest impact on the defense for the defense to be effective. And um, I think that if there's going to be one guy that comes out of there as a black shirt, it's going to be him. I'm going to go with uh, Will Honus because uh, last year he actually led uh, the Huskers with tackles against Purdue last year, and that's going to be the key to this year's game. It's who can stop Rondell Moore, I think, and I think we're going to count on that kind of experience, and uh, hopefully he can get it done in that game. So he's he's my ideal choice for that first, uh, first black shirt for the great defensive performance game one. Great point, Boomer. Uh, Rob, also a solid prediction there with Mayuga Clements. All right, Honk, are we ready to get on our Hero Soap Company Soapbox? I think I am. Now, it's time for the Redcast Soapbox segment. Get up! Get up! On that soapbox! Get up! Get up! On the soapbox! Hey, Redcast, soap, we all use it. It's a necessity. So why not use good soap? Am I right? How about you give our friends at Hero Soap Company a try? It's handmade and no chemicals, dyes, or fragrances are used. We're talking great smells like lavender, cedarwood and charcoal, lime and sea salt, and many more. Like a peppermint plus cool soap that is infused with menthol to give you an intense freshness. Go to HeroSoapCompany.com and shop for yourself. Subscribe. Yes, that's subscribe. <laughs> For maximum savings. But listen, these great soap options may not even be the best part. Hero Soap is a veteran-owned company that is giving back in some incredible ways. For one, Hero Soap matches all subscription purchases by sending that equal amount of soap overseas to our troops. Here's a stupefying fact. Did you know that our troops are responsible for purchasing their own toiletries? That is some grade A bullshit. Well, Hero Soap is trying to fix that. And a portion of sales is donated back to charities that are focused on helping veterans and first responders. Charities like the Gary Sinise Foundation and Operation Finally Home. So you gotta ask yourself, 
What is your current soap doing? I'm guessing nothing as great as this. And get this, our buds over at Hero Soap Company are hooking you Redcasters up. Enter Redcast in the discount code box at checkout and you will save even more on your purchase. Treat your body to some amazing soaps, save some money with the Redcast promo code, and support our troops and help our veterans all at the same time. There are so many wins here, I'm beginning to think this was made by the 94 and 95 Husker squads. HeroSoapCompany.com Redcast discount code. Subscribe. Make it happen. Now back to the podcast as the Redcast gents step up to the soapbox. Get up. Well, uh, I think the uh, soapbox today is going to revolve around baseball. We have finally got Major League Baseball back, uh, at least this week, as they uh, uh, plan to get back into spring training and hopefully start in late July. And it was an ugly, drawn-out argument between the players and the owners. Uh, A bit ridiculous, in my opinion. But on a more positive note, we've had some really good news on the college baseball front over the last few weeks about this idea of pushing the season back and starting a little bit later, which would have a kind of a waterfall effect, obviously. And it, this is something that I've really supported for a long time. And what I'm really glad about, if this is a soapbox, is that um, someone like Eric Backage, uh, the Michigan coach, finally got it in the sense that it wasn't about a northern versus southern uh, conversation here, mm-hmm. but it was actually about trying to raise all boats in college baseball. And if they want to get a third paid assistant, if they want to raise the scholarship limits, um, they've got to make more money. And by pushing college baseball back, starting in March, uh, let's say, and actually taking the College World Series all the way into July, you're going to increase attendance across the board, across all baseball programs, potentially have a lot better TV window as NCAA basketball winds down and they have a bigger window in the April, May, and June mm-hmm. to take up that college uh, TV audience up a bit more. And uh, really could grow the sport. And I think we're going to talk a little bit uh, here later about Will Bolton and how he's managing the Nebraska roster. There's a a chance here that the next several years could be uh, sort of a golden era of college baseball. And I hope that they actually proceed with this proposal to push the season back. A couple different points to what you're bringing up there, Dave. I mean, not only could it bring in more money because – you're not competing against basketball. You're not competing against other things when you get into middle of the summer there. Reduced travel as well. The reduced travel piece of it. Uh, that can save the northern schools and those southern schools that are having to pay out $10,000, $20,000 guarantees for schools to come to them in February and March. They can save money by not having to pay those guarantees as well. I mean, there's there's multiple things that are going on there all at the same time. Kyle Pearson from Omaha, who you know is obviously ESPN's big guy and does you know the College World Series and does a number of games. We always talk about how much it's it's difficult in the northern schools to be playing in February and March. But he's like, hey, he's been down in Fort Worth in early March and they've had ice storms, right? I mean, the point is, is that that's not a good time to be playing baseball games and expecting a lot of people to come into the stands. And so they've had numbers of where like schools, whether you're North or South, where they've had early games, what the attendance is versus later games and the later games, 
or double or triple in some cases the amount as the early games. And so if you can have more of those later games, if you can have more games being played in May and June, and you know what that can mean towards not just ticket sales, but the concessions and everything, those are the things that can make baseball more viable, which can make it more self-reliant, which can add you know additional scholarships and also be able to maybe even pay for that third coach that they've talked about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that those stats you talked about, uh, uh, D1 Baseball and Kendall Rogers did a lot of that, where they showed that the attendance uh, later in the year is so much higher uh, for schools across the board, and uh, that should only play out even further. Uh, there's some logistical problems, right, Boomer? I mean, let's think about Nebraska. They share Haymarket Park with the Lincoln Salt Dogs, uh, who start their season right after Nebraska season ends. So... There would be some things that are going to have to work out, and that's uh, not the only case. I'm sure there's other college teams that play and share their facility with a minor league team, but uh, not things that can't be overcome. Hey, look, if the Oakland A's can uh, share a stadium with the Oakland Raiders for all the years that they did playing football (laughs) and baseball and scheduling around that, I think that a minor league baseball team and a college baseball team can work out scheduling conflicts as well. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an easy thing to, to work out. And, uh, you know, Evan Bland wrote a great article in the World Herald about some of these issues. And, you know, we think about college baseball and we think about teams that we would normally think are, oh, these are big money makers or successful teams like Florida. He commented how Florida won the College World Series in 2017. And they had a, you know, they generated $1.46 million in revenue. But they had $5 million in expenses that year. So they lost $3.5 million for a College World Series winning baseball team. Uh, last year, you know, LSU and Arkansas with, you know, LSU is the, probably the marquee they baseball are. team everyone thinks of. And Arkansas with our with our uh, coach, which, you know, Van Horn, which we named our segment after. They were profitable, but their gains were just about half a million dollars for LSU and like $800,000 for Arkansas. So they're not making lots of money. And that's just kind of that that whole rub of the way college baseball is orchestrated. Uh, Honky kind of referenced it. If you're anywhere north of basically, you know the you know Kansas, you have to travel for half the season, mm-hmm. and that that's a huge drain on those sports. And then if you're of those southern schools, you have to pay people to try to come down there. So it's just hard for anyone to make any money. And like Honky said, it's just. A lot of these revenues, yeah, they may be southern, but it's not great weather in February necessarily. I, I worked in Georgia for a while in some of my previous lifetimes, and I was there in February. You know, it was 60 degrees or so, and for me, that was great. I was walking around in shorts, but everybody else there was basically wearing parkas. Nobody's going to go sit at a baseball game in the middle of Georgia in, in February. It's just the way it is. It's just the sport could benefit from being pushed back a little further. I mean, baseball is a late spring, summer sport. You, know, you go out there, you sit in the sun. You enjoy nice warm weather. Maybe have a beer. Yeah, maybe have a beer. I mean, yeah. you know that. Uh, God forbid that could happen in a sporting event. I mean, there's <laughs> another you know possible cash you know flow there for everybody. And and we've seen so many sports or, or excuse me, so many programs eliminate baseball recently. Uh, you know, there's a lot of power five schools that don't play baseball. I mean, like Wisconsin, Iowa State, uh, Colorado didn't play baseball. Syracuse, Syracuse doesn't play baseball and. You know, we've seen like a Furman quit. A Bowling Green was going to give it up, but they had like some rally to, to resurrect it for, for a yeah, brief period. That's right. I, I don't know how long it'll last, but, you know, it's a sport that could generate revenue, but the way it's set up, it's just, we just like refuse to let it. And that's, that's the most frustrating part about it. Boomer, I think that's a good point. It feels like baseball at the college level 
for so long. It's always like you have like two hands tied behind your back. Like we just we just don't let it go because when you actually like promote it and when it's on TV and when the College World Series in Omaha is doing the thing it's doing, it seems really successful. It seems people really get behind it. Dave, give me a little history if you can. I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit, mm-hmm. but most college and pro sports are at least in the same general season. But why is baseball in college always so much earlier? And why? what's the tradition behind that? I mean, why, why are they playing it the way they do? Well, I think that was largely based off of semesters, right? And they actually wanted to finish their season within a, a time frame. And reality is, is that uh, for decades, uh, generations, I mean, college baseball was typically not where most of the best prospects would go. Now, mm-hmm. there's been tons of great college players that end off end up going and playing in the major leagues, Hall of Famers. Um, but uh, many of the best prospects would get drafted early enough and sign with a major league team. So it, it wasn't always highly regarded. Uh, and it was regionalized. Um, there's a very uh, different structure to the NCAA tournament. Um, uh, well into the 80s, and then uh, the Southern schools and particularly the West Coast schools dominated the sport. And so they actually started playing their seasons in January. Uh, If you actually go look at records, Boomer, I'm sure you could see this, uh, and look at Arizona State or even a, a school like Oklahoma State, they would play, I think Wichita State actually played like close to 80 games one year um, uh, because they would just they start in January and just play so much baseball and the Northern League, Northern schools just wouldn't play as much and ultimately just kind of gave up on it uh, for a time. Uh, we're seeing that change now with the big 10 and other uh, Northern schools paying more attention thanks in parts to big 10 network revenue, et cetera. But um, it was, it was just a very different sport for a long time. So if we move that season back, what would that mean towards things like the the MLB draft? What would that mean towards the CWS? What does that mean towards minor league baseball as we know it? Yeah, this all seems to be aligning uh, really well for some weird reason, um, and and not to the benefit of all, right? I mean, Major League Baseball wants to contract minor league baseball and have less minor league teams affiliated with their major league teams, um, which could drive more players to to choose college baseball opposed to getting drafted and going into the minors right away. Um, if you have a, a later college baseball season, you inevitably have a later draft. Um, something that for a long time at major league baseball opposed because they wanted to get their draft picks into, um, these, uh, short summer ball leagues, these, these short, uh, single a leagues and, and get these players right into their system. Um, but now that they're contracting major minor league baseball, that's not as uh, a big deal to them. So maybe actually starting later makes uh, sense. And so everything seems to be aligning where this is all going to turn out where it, both college and the professional baseball structure will benefit from this. It feels like there's this kind of win-win in terms of North and South, Who's the loser out of all this? Is it minor league programs, minor league cities that would have had teams? I mean, who who loses if we move 
the college season back to a March to June kind of No, that's a good question. I don't think there's a a huge loss there. I think from the players, college baseball has gotten so much better from a facilities and instruction um, that now they uh, are doing a a great job with those players. Um, There there could be some players that end up ultimately – not getting a big signing bonus, for example, out of high school because they um, have a, a, a shorter draft maybe and they go to college and they don't develop as, as well as they expect. And so there could be a financial ramifications for a few players. I think the biggest loser is probably certain cities that have minor league teams that ultimately mm-hmm. may get contracted, um, you know, and and the contraction is it starts with not being affiliated with a major league team. Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these cities have had teams for many years with a major league affiliation. And that has been able to how they, they market and promote their team. We know Lincoln, for example, has a minor league team. They've had it now for 20 years, 20 years. The Salt Dogs have never had an affiliation with a major league franchise. I'm a novice to all this pro baseball. You know that. Right. You're a, a huge Cardinals fan. Right. What is their triple A, their double A, their single A? What What are those programs for for the Cardinals? Yeah, and who who is affected by this most out of that? Uh, it moves around a little bit, but triple uh, A is Memphis, the Redbirds in Memphis, and goes on down from there. And they have they essentially have a one triple A team, one double A, but then they'll have multiple single A teams and in various different variations of that. And geez, I don't know, maybe they might have six or seven minor league teams at least that are affiliated with them with full rosters, coaching staffs, et cetera. And so it's a pretty extensive minor league system. So potentially you could be cutting some of that down correct? and letting college baseball fill more of that gap of producing more players Yeah, that maybe would have been single A kind of guys. Teams like the A's, which is my team that I follow. And so Dave and I follow two of the most successful franchises in major league history. They have seven teams that are affiliated with them in the minor leagues. Um, and it goes everywhere from your AAA to your foreign rookie is what they call it. With those, one of my biggest issues with baseball has always been the fact that so many kids come out of high school into um, what are the major leagues. And then those players never pan out. And from a financial perspective, sure, some of those players actually benefit from that with a, with a nice major league contract and a signing bonus, but then it, they never go anywhere with it. And quite frankly, I think it ruins a lot of kids' lives because they never really have the opportunity to get that education that can back them up for future if they aren't a successful um, major league player. And I think that they've had that veil pulled over their eyes, believing that all they ever have to do is be good enough to get into the minors and then boom, they're going to be a major league player. But Rob, where I'm getting at is moving forward into the future. Mm-hmm. Let's say if you had, you didn't have a single A, even as an option, because that kind of went away. You know, minor, major leagues are trying to cut down the amount of minor leagues. And we've seen better college baseball over the course of the last 20 years. We've seen more resources, better facilities and all that. What becomes the option for a high school kid? Moving forward, is that option, do I want to go to college where I can be playing in front of five and 6,000 people, blah, 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 or do I want to make that jump to double A? Is that the future where you see that being the option, or is there always going to be an option of single A? There will always be single A. Dave is right. There's always going to be A, double A, triple A. Those are going to never go away. The rookie leagues are never going to go away. What I see is 
maybe more of a system in place that, that matches a lot of the basketball and football where there is a an age limit when players can come out. Like, yes, you have to play your freshman year in college at baseball because let's look at it. And quite frankly, a lot of these guys that are coming out of high school that are pitchers, you know, they're pitching in high school. They never there's even, way too many high school players that to, to do that. I mean, there's way too many. You look at the draft this year, and there's so many high school players that get drafted. And these poor kids, their dreams are going to be so crushed in like two or three years from now, especially without being able to train right now and everything else. Um, I mean, that's just a small example. But I fully believe that these kids, um, it'll be good for college baseball because you'll get a lot more of the talent going into college. Um, they'll be able to actually play at a level consistent with all the other sports where there are going to be guys that are sophomores, juniors, seniors who choose to stay, get better, and then they end up getting drafted later on in their college careers. I think that college baseball should, can, and will become kind of the main pipeline into major league baseball i think you're crazy rob but sure okay i mean we're talking about a reduction from 160 minor league teams to 140 or maybe a little bit less so maybe maybe one minor team less per franchise um up to before this year there's 40 rounds their major league draft uh, we had five this year because it just it's crazy. Um, and next year they're going to have 20, and that's still a big deal. And then they'll probably go back to somewhere between 20 and 40. Um, that's how many players are getting drafted. So, yes, they're not only pulling from uh, United States high schools, but also foreign players get drafted. Um, and there's a needs to be a lot of places for those players to go. I, I do agree with Rob that college baseball is better today than it ever has been before. Uh, the depth of the play and the depth of the fa- facilities and the training available makes it more attractive. But uh, Kyle Peterson had this on on one of the radio shows. Uh, I want to say it was Severe and Benning, but it might have been on Sportsmanlike Conduct. And he was saying, like, uh, last year, the first pick of the sixth round had a signing bonus. There's slots here, right? And the Major League Baseball draft has slots, and they have signing bonuses assigned to those slots. The signing bonus for the first pick of the sixth round was $300,000. Uh, this year, there was no sixth round. So that player, uh, actually, they had maxed the signing bonus out this year to $20,000 for anybody who wasn't drafted, essentially. So that person, if they so chose to go to the Major Leagues in that system, only signed a $20,000 contract opposed to having a $300,000 signing bonus. Um, but that will go back. The, the major leagues aren't going to give up on their minor league system. It's been around for 130 years. Um, I do think college baseball will play a much bigger role in it, um, but there's far too many players to expect that college baseball will be able to take all those players in. And now, around the Van Horn. All right, uh, into our baseball segment, which we've been calling Around the Van Horn since the start, but uh, I think there's been a suggestion on the Redcast to change this to uh, Nuts and Bolts. Is that right, Rob? <laughs> Is that what you suggested? Hey, I, I like that. I like that. I just, I, I laugh because a lot of, you know, Van Horn hasn't been the coach for like 14 years, and he's taken Arkansas to like, what, like four or five College World Series. <laughs> he's still our coach, damn it. And here we are paying tribute to a to a dude that left us for the SEC. and, and We you know, owe him everything. So That's right, Dave. And Hunky even said to me, where would Nebraska baseball be without him? And, and I absolutely don't disagree with that sentiment. 
but I was like, well, why don't we just call the segment Nuts and Bolts? I think there's some Lincoln hardware stores that could potentially sponsor that, Rob. So get on that. Man, yeah, I'll get on that. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's talk some Nuts and Bolts there, uh, Honky. Will Bolt has been busy out there on the recruiting trail, and uh, we'll do a little maybe roster management baseball style. Yeah, this is a, it's a little new for me to do baseball roster management, but uh, Bolt and, and staff they've done they've continued their torrid recruiting pace uh, as three in-state players in three different classes announced their commitments to the program. Uh, the headliner was Nebraska Gatorade Player of the Year and former Texas A&M signee Millard West 2020 infielder Max Anderson. Uh, the Huskers also received pledges from 2021 Norris pitcher outfielder C.J. Hood. And 2023 Beatrice pitcher infielder Tucker Timmerman. This is the thing we talked about the second a year ago. We talked about this the second that Bolt became the head coach, and I had very few issues that I could ever have with Erstad. I thought I love Erstad. I love him to death. But one knock was from a recruiting standpoint, and specifically in state, it seemed like at times we lost some in-state guys. And one of the teams that we lost some of those in-state guys to was A&M. And here's Bolt coming in here, and he's having the success. He's bringing in the local kids. I mean, right now, as a, as a you know, red-blooded Husker Nebraska guy, I love seeing that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really unusual uh, baseball offseason in this regard. You know, Will Bolt's doing a great job across the board in recruiting. And he, I, to your point about Erstad, I would just simply say that Bolt is far more aggressive in his recruiting philosophy uh, both in-state and out-of-state, um, bringing guys in from the JUCO ranks and and transfers in uh, like uh, the New Mexico State pitcher we just got a, a few weeks ago as well. Um, and a great sign that he's gla- grabbing some, some players like uh, Max Anderson, who uh, had signed with A&M. Um, and there's other, other A&M recruits or commits that have, have – flipped over to Nebraska. How Bolt is doing this um, is a very aggressive stance on the roster limit because NCA, due to the coronavirus pandemic and uh, the decision to allow seniors to remain for another year, like Mojo Heggie, for example, he's going to come back, um, is that they've lifted the 35-man roster limit for NCA baseball. And so he can exceed that. And he's probably going to be able to exceed it for the next year too, just because there's going to be a transition back down. Right. And so he's got a couple of years here. We can, he can carry more players and he can distribute his scholarships differently. Uh, they still have the ridiculous 11.7, but he can actually break those up uh, in different ways. And that's probably beneficial for in-state players more so than out-state because they're paying in-state tuition. Right. And so it's pretty appealing for someone to potentially stay in state and you're getting more of your education paid because of how those scholarships are, are cut out. And I think A&M is, is doing the same thing here and, and there's a lot of roster shuffling going on due to that. And um, some more aggressive coaches like Will Bolt are going to take advantage of it. And that's what we have right now. One of the guys you guys left out of there too is this kid, uh, Luke Sartori, who's going to be added to either a starter or the outfield depth. He's coming out. I mean, kids were out of what, Lincoln? I think he was out of um, Lincoln Southwest. Uh, was playing for a junior college, was, was set to sign for the 2022 class, and 
turned around and they offered him a scholarship for this year's class, I, I believe. And, and he'll be coming in because I guess the guy he's replacing was a uh, draft pick by the New York Yankees as an undrafted free agent. Polinsky. So yes. Yep. Yep. Again, it just sticks to your point that they are getting a lot of these local kids. Yeah. I think there has to be a balance, you know, in-state, out-of-state. I mean, to Erstad's credit, he built NCAA-caliber teams year in and year out with a, a limited in-state recruiting. So um, you still need to be an eye for talent. You just can't take the in-state kids uh, just because. But uh, to Honky's point, um, you know, if we have that in-state talent here and we know the golden era of Nebraska baseball with Van Horn had a lot of in-state talent, um, that's great. All right, that's enough of baseball. Um, even though I really enjoyed it, I love talking Nebraska baseball, uh, no matter what time of year it is. Uh, man, I wish the, miss the College World Series right now. But uh, let's get out of here with some parting shots, and I will start with Honky. Uh, well, first off, if uh, people have uh, made it this late into the show, every once in a while I like to throw out a weird word uh, just to, to make sure that you're still listening. So, cattywampus. If you're listening right now, just tweet cattywampus or Facebook or Instagram us, whatever, cattywampus, and we'll know that you are still listening this late. Word of the day, cattywampus. <laughs> I was impressed you broke out Torrid earlier, Honky. That was good. Well, you know, it's, it's what I do. But the, the second part shot I had, and this is actually something from like a week or so back, the Heart of Huskerland blog, which is at Huskerland blog on Twitter, he asked a question, and I thought this was really interesting. I wanted your guys' opinion here. He goes, what's your dream home-and-home home for Nebraska that doesn't include teams that we already have home-and-home home scheduled for? And so he said for him, uh, hmm. LSU or some big SEC school. So just to give some idea, you know, in the future we have Oklahoma and Colorado, Tennessee, Arizona. Those are schools we have home-and-homes already scheduled for. Who is someone you would really like to see in football? Dave, I'll start with you. Wow, that's a awesome question we say that's a great question a lot but that's a really good one uh and a fun one you know i i will say auburn actually um you know uh a lot of sec schools and stadiums be fun to go see uh but uh i have a good friend uh randy who is an auburn alum and he'd really be able to show me around the town i got a feeling uh some great tailgating there Obviously, you have the, the, you know, rolling the toilet paper there, uh, that type of thing. So a lot of tradition. I'll go Auburn. You know, uh, Auburn's an interesting one there, Dave. We haven't played a home-and-home home against them, I think, since the early 80s. It would have been a case like 81, 82-ish uh, time frame. But the last time we played them, you were at that game, and you had just moved down that is to correct. Fort Worth, and we played them yeah. in the uh, the Cotton Bowl. That was a that was a Callahan game. That would have been uh, January first of two thousand seven. That's mm-hmm. right. And actually, that is where I, I met uh, uh, Auburn Randy. I'll call him uh, a coworker of mine down in Fort Worth, and uh, he's giving me the background on Auburn and Pete Dye and all this stuff. <laughs> it's just crazy SEC football talk, man. Let me tell you. Did we win that game, Dave? No, we lost. We uh, Where? Was, you were at a game and we lost, Dave. No, and way. we lost. Yes, that is, that is. Thanks, Boomer. I really appreciate that. I'll shut up now. Boomer, let's move to you. Who would you like to see us play in a home and home? It has to be a team that we just don't play very often, and in that caliber that we have, I would love to see Nebraska play Alabama more than we have. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking about it. We've never played in Tuscaloosa, have we? 
We played them in a couple bowl games. They played here in the 70s. Well, like 70. And then I think when we eight. played them in 78, I don't think that was in Tuscaloosa. Was that in Birmingham? I think it was in maybe, Birmingham. Maybe. Okay. So I think it would be awesome to be able to go to Tuscaloosa, play there, have them come to Lincoln. You know, you've got the whole Tom Osborne, you know, Bear Bryant thing going. It would just be, these are the kind of games that college football is supposed to have. And we should be seeing a lot more of in college stadiums on campus just to enjoy that. That's what the sport really needs a lot more of. Rob. All right, I'm going to go completely selfish here because I came from the Bay Area and I'm going to go Pac-12. I'm going to say Cal or Stanford. And mostly because, one, that would probably be the best road trip that we ever went on because I would make sure that the entire Redcast went on a great wine-tasting trip. We could take the wives with us, leave the kids at home. <laughs> um Stanford is just a fun campus to be on. I'm not, I've been there probably a dozen times from World Cup games to Super Bowl to 49er games to, um, even though I'm a Raider fan, yes, I went to a 49er game there. Um, and it's just a fun campus to be on. Those students are great. Their band is great. Everything is just fun about them. And in that way, it kind of models Cal, on the other hand. I just have a lot of friends that are Cal fans, and they always want to talk trash about Nebraska football. And I would just love to shut them up with a, hey, we beat the living heck out of you. Um, So for me, that would be it. That's a personal reason. From a competitive reason, though, I'd like to see Oregon. Oregon, Oregon, like home and away, would just be awesome. I feel like, um, especially if we were rolling through the frost era the way that we want to get it to, that would be great. Well, Rob, we just got done playing Oregon a couple of years ago, and just to help you out. I want to see it again. And to help you out with your Cal Bear, Bear friends, we blew them out the doors in 98 and 99, but I think yeah, but Stanford's right. a good one. Yeah, we, we owe them for 1941 uh, game. That's the only Yeah, the Rose Bowl. Thing. We've only played them once, I think, if, Is if that I it? remember right. I, I, I remember looking into this a long time ago in some of our early podcast years, the teams we've never played and the, the few we, the teams we've just barely played. I th- Pretty sure that's the only time we ever played Stanford it was 1941 in the Rose Bowl. So, and I'll ask the trivia question: yeah. When we played Stanford in that 41 Rose Bowl, what was their nickname? Oh, were they the, uh, the Indians? Indian then? Yeah, that's yeah. right, the Indians. I've been to both campuses. Uh, I think Cal Cal's a at a better campus just from a beauty standpoint. The farm is huge. Palo Alto, Stanford's campus is the largest college campus I've ever seen. It just goes forever. Um, they call it the farm for a reason, uh, and a completely rebuilt stadium. So two good choices there, Rob. All right. Well, let's move on with the parting shots. I'll go with Rob. You know, these days things are starting to, uh, pick up again. You know, I believe that the economy is going to start coming back after all of this, uh, COVID nonsense. So if you're looking to advertise, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at, at go redcast, or you can Email me at GoBigRedCastRob at gmail.com. I'd be more than happy to talk about your business needs. And, (laughs) you know, we can work out some kind of a deal where we'll buy you beers so you can hear your name right here on the RedCast. Let's talk. I like it. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right, Boomer, get us out of here. Well, my shout out wanted to go to uh, just a recent retirement that was announced with uh, Husker Sports, uh, Boyd Epley. Um, our strength and conditioning coach has decided to retire for that second time. Uh, he came back to help try to get the strength and conditioning program back on track. Uh, he'd been here for, gosh, what was it, 35, 40 years probably. 
give or take. So yeah, late been 60s. Here for, yeah, yep, 68. Yeah, I've been here forever, and it was it was one of the things that really brought Nebraska football to 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 the peak it was for so many decades as a strength and conditioning program. And, you know, hopefully he started steering it back on the right track. I think he's, you know, worked with Zach Duvall, and we'll be hopefully seeing good things from that again. And uh, thanks again, Boyd, for everything you've done for, for Nebraska sports, from football to everything else. And uh, enjoy your second retirement. Absolutely, Boomer. It's a great call and almost feels like a, a life that could make a movie out of it, actually, from some of the stuff that has impacted college sports um, since mm-hmm. that fateful day in 1968, right? Um, yep. So. Great stuff. Great stuff. All right, guys. Uh, great show. Had a lot of fun. Uh, looking forward to that pick six preview interview next Tuesday, Honky. Uh, take that one out of the park. For now, let's call that a Go Big Redcast. GBR. GBR.